By rattling snake and bullfrogs croak, the singing robin and jackalope. By howling coyote and gator's snout, to the crossroads we dance about. Welcome to Southern Bramble, a podcast of crooked ways. Southern Bramble is a Patreon-supported podcast, so if you want to see Austin and I get extra spicy with special guest hosts, head on over to patreon.com backslash Southern Bramble. If you subscribe, you'll get early access to podcast episodes, recorded video, monthly spell, sigil, or recipe outlines. You'll get to also ask listener questions. And if you join the top tier, you'll be acknowledged at the end of each episode. So please, if you'd like to support us, Check us out on Patreon. I promise you won't regret it. This is Southern Bramble, a podcast of Crooked Ways. I'm Marshall, the witch of Southern Light. And I'm Austin Bane X Bramble on Instagram. And today we have a very special guest with us, author of The Crooked Path, Keldon Mercury. Hi, Keldon. How are you? Hi, I'm awesome. I'm great. I'm so excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Uh, I love your book. I talk about your book all the time. I put it on pretty much anytime someone asks, 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 anytime someone asks for a book recommendation, I always say Crooked Path. Um, I, just a little tangent here, because I have to say this to you. Uh, I love, I not only do I love your book, I actually love that it's forwarded by Gemma Gary because I actually read traditional witchcraft by Gemma Gary first and then crooked to no, then um uh black toad then crooked path and to be perfectly honest I kind of wish I'd read your book first oh my gosh Whoa. <laughs> specifically because your book actually takes so many of these traditional witchcraft teachings and then it puts it on the practitioner without localizing them. So the way that you teach in this book is so specific with with references, with uh, an organized train of thought, and then exercises that you can apply wherever you are in the world. And um, while I love Gemma Gary, so much of her writings are very, very specific to Cornwall or West uh, West Country, England. So some of the things I felt like, that's cool. I don't think I can do that where I live in Texas. So I actually, as much as I love it, I, I, I would very much continue to recommend your book first. Oh, thank you. Yeah, one of, the, one of the things with The Crooked Path that I really wanted to do was sort of bridge this gap. Um, I was seeing so many people um, becoming familiar with traditional witchcraft through the Cornish Book of Ways, which is a fabulous book, um, but it is a very specific, regionally specific book. And it's meant to be that way. And I think a lot of people were missing that point. Um, and she's very open about it, um, you know, that this is a practice that she's constructed based off of folklore from Cornwall. Um, and really it's important that you honor and work with the region that you live in. Um, and so I wanted to create a text that offered insight into these based practices, but encouraged you to figure out how that works where you are. Um, and I'd like to think I did a pretty good job. Oh, for sure. I love it. <laughs> I, I think that's very important to, especially when talking about um, 
traditional or traditional folkloric witchcraft in that it is very regional to the practitioner. And I like with the Crooked Path that it is, it seems ge not geocentric, but like geoapathetic, I guess, in, in the way that, and it's like you said, there is this deep richness and beauty to Gemma's uh, books. And she is very forward about like, hey, like, you know, this is, it's Cornwall and Devon, baby, like, that's it. And so I think what happens, and I mean, it's not necessarily like a problem. I mean, if it works for that person, it works for that person. But there is something that I see sometimes often is that there's almost this like Cornish craft, Gary craft, like um, centricism to their practice. And that's all good and fine because I mean, she's written amazing material. But I think what happens then is, you know, we're on American soil and it's it's a very different place, right? So I think it's really cool about the book is it almost takes it and it's like, it's your practice and it's your area, but I'm just kind of giving like a nice framework to work and build upon. That's actually a fantastic segue to the next section of uh, our outline today, which of course is, Kelton, can you define what witchcraft is to you? Yes, and I knew um, the fortune teller did tell me that this is the way that I die is trying to define witchcraft. <laughs> um, so this is this is the last day of my life. Um, Let's make it a good one. So, um, I just I just want to acknowledge right away that trying to define witchcraft, which is even I think even harder than what I've been tasked with trying to define traditional witchcraft because like, you're always gonna piss someone off. Um, so obviously this is just my personal definition. And in that way, um, it's sort of a loose definition. Um, and I think Austin, you had said, you had talked about this, I wanna say it was like in the first episode where you were talking about defining witchcraft as sort of like a series of practices. Um, and I sort of simplify that into like these three key elements that themselves become bigger, broader things. Um, but the first is a witch is someone who works magic. Um, and this could be ceremonial magic. Um, oftentimes it's more folk magic, especially within traditional or folkloric witchcraft. Um, but this is somebody who's going to be working spells and charms either for blessing or for bane and they're they're really um they're skilled in sort of pulling on the strings of fate and causing these ripple effects in reality to to affect change and um that magic again it can look all kinds of different ways um this would also i would say incorporate practices too around like divination although i think that also kind of falls into the second key element which is working with spirits um, so acts of necromancy um, communing with spirits forming packs and relationships with spirits traveling into the other world so practices like spirit flight or hedge crossing are really important um, and then the the third piece that i think defines a witch is working with the natural landscape, that bioregionalism, 
partnering and allying with the genus loci, um, really being a steward of the land. Um, I think we're stewards of both the other world and this world. We help to take care of the world, the planet, the earth, but we're also tapping into its inherent virtues. We're forming this, this symbiotic sort of relationship with the spirits of the land. Um, and they can in turn help us with our magic. Um, this is a sort of very broad um, definition, but I think it helps at least close some of the gaps. Like when we look at things like um, sort of like what, what differentiates between a witch and another magical practitioner, because I think that that has become a really highly debated topic. And it's one that I think should be addressed because not all magical practice equals witchcraft. And I think in the minds of so many people that that is sort of the case, they kind of simplify it down. And I don't think that that's really all that respectful to those magical practitioners that maybe have their own terminology. I recently um, posted, which thank you for bringing that up. I recently posted a, uh, like an, a little article on my blog that kind of like, and yes, it were it was um, somewhat a personal definition to witchcraft, but what I actually tried to do was look very objectively at folklore. I really like that you broke it down and simplified it a little more into three, um, because I think that that still works well in the way that I would define witch. I had clearly stated in the beginning of the the. Um, article, I was like, you know, I, I don't think that witches are bound by a body of belief systems. I don't, I don't think that's how we can define a witch. And I think that is kind of the issue that a lot of times when we're trying to define witch we run into is because we're trying to unify a belief system. So I say, no, I don't think we need to um, define a belief system because every witch is entitled to their own opinion and belief and, and religion, if they have one, I think which kind of comes down to a series of magical acts. So I think um, it can be really beneficial to define, <clears throat> define that. So Kelton, I'm wondering, um, what, is, what does your practice uh, look like uh, specifically, if you, whatever you can share? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, my practice incorporates all three of those elements. Um, working with magic um, primarily for me looks like a lot of very um, sort of common folk magic practices. Um, I like to think of myself as someone who's very like practical and down to earth. Um, and so a lot of like the, the spells and the charms that I'm doing are going to be involving things from the kitchen or that I'm collecting out in nature and bringing those things together. Um, this ties into sort of working with the land. I've always lived in places where there is a lot of nature. So I feel really lucky in that regard. And growing up, um, I mean, I was in that generation and in that sort of space where it was like, your parents sent you outside to play all day. And like you, basically don't come home till dark. Um, and for me, what that looked like was going into the woods next to my house. Um, and so very early on, it was this exposure to, to nature, um, the spirits of nature, forming those relationships. And so that still is a very prevalent part 
of my practice today, um, working with plants. Um, one of the things I really love to do when I move to a new place is to immediately set about identifying local plants and then sort of creating a new sort of, um, I guess, set of correspondence, if you will, um, learning to work with the magical virtues of those new plants. Um, outside of working magic, um, working with spirits is a huge part. Um, allyship with familiar spirits is a vital part of my practice. Um, I work with quite a few different types of spirits um, and, and that includes hedge crossing or spirit flight, obviously attendance to the otherworldly Sabbath, um, which we will get into today, um, is a major part of it. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say that those are sort of the key pieces, um, but always kind of grounded in sort of practicality and sort of a simplicity that, um, I think sometimes is looked maybe down upon or I think we sort of look at like um, the like the idea of something being simple as being like not effective or not as magical or not as special um, but I like to think that you know I could work magic with with just my thoughts um, if I needed to. Um, I also want to say thank you for pointing out the word genius, lo genius loci, because I didn't know if it was genus loci or genus loci all this time, so I've been saying it incorrectly. Honestly, I hear people say both, um, and I just, I just, I don't know, I just go with it. I think technically neither is incorrect, because if... Like if you're talking about the Greek word loci, it would have been spelled L-O-K-I, so it would have been L loci. But then when you transliterate it to Latin, it probably would have been spelled with a C, and they probably would have made the ch sound. So um, a random, a random aside that nobody asked for. I'm very <laughs> no, sorry. It's okay. I think it's really important. Um, one of the things that I've sort of like, I think that there's importance of pronouncing things correctly. I think spelling and grammar and all of that's like really great. But over the years, I found that like, I think that there's something sort of classist about like being like, oh, like you, you spelled this thing wrong. Um, Absolutely. Or like you pronounced this thing wrong. So it's like, as long as I understand what the person's saying, I tend not to get up in arms about it. And if I don't understand, like I'll ask like for clarity, but um, there's my random aside. I saw this thing and it was really helpful for me once. And it says, if you mispronounce words, it's because you most likely read them. If you're already, if you're reading, you are already doing a great job. So mm -hmm. don't get down for yourself for mispronouncing words. Don't get down to the people for mispronouncing words. They're reading. They're mm -hmm. obviously absorbing information. So if, if you, if, if you have the type of relationship where informing them of the correct way is available, then that's wonderful. But ultimately, you're right. It's, it's absolutely not that important. Um, I think I was just kind of a self-obsessive over it because I was like, oh my goodness, I'm saying it on my own podcast. I'm saying it on my, on my platform. I hope I'm not saying it incorrectly, but um, that's very helpful to know. Right. That it kind well, of again, I think it's this sort of anxiety about like, are people going to perceive us as like not being intelligent? I mean, one of the things that I've like really had to deal with in writing um, this new book is all of these different languages um, and 
I have a really hard time pronouncing different names, like names in French. Um, sometimes the Latin um, is really a mouthful. Um, and that's sort of an anxiety that I've had of like, you know, if I am presenting and I mispronounce something like then is there's this perception that like one that I either like don't know what I'm talking about or two like I don't care enough to like learn proper pronunciations, which I do. I do care a lot. Um, it's just very difficult sometimes. A cult, I, I forget who said it, but somebody had said, um, I guess, kind of infamously that uh, occultism is pronouncing words a certain way your entire life until you're around other occultists and then you figure out that you've been saying it wrong. Like, yes. for the longest time, I was saying, um, like, atropine, which is the main chemical component in uh, atropines or uh, atropic nightshades like belladonna and i was saying it um i can't even say how i was saying it wrong now um atropine i was saying it like atropine and it's it's atropine it's fine i wanted to circle back around though because i know you had talked about um languages and reading the book there was it was brilliant i mean you've taken when we when we look into it we're um well let's talk let's let's talk about the book for a second because i don't think we've we've kind of announced the new project that you've been working on we should probably do that <laughs> yeah, yeah i guess we should so um Keldon, you have a new book coming out right so you've had how long has it been since the crooked path um the crooked path came out in 2020 that was last wait that was just last year yeah Okay, perfect. Okay, so it hasn't been that long. I thought it was longer. I thought it was twenty, like twenty nineteen. I thought it was um, just an ancient tome. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you're coming out with a new book. Are you able to share the title with us? Oh yes, yeah, yep. The title is the um, the Witch's Sabbath, a his or an exploration of history, folklore, and modern practice. So. We'll be definitely talking about Spirit Flight. I know that um, Spirit Flight and, and Hedge Crossing is relatively important to your practice. So I wanted to kind of take a look uh, and, and give people kind of a, a cute overview of the book because I finished reading it last night and I was very, very impressed by the amount of different areas of Europe that you had um, talked about, I mean, you talked about uh, the Akalar in, in um, Spain, you had talked about Sweden as well. It was really, really lovely. And I'm also very thrilled that in the book, you didn't shy away from the very gruesome um, <laughs> images that the Sabbath can bring. I mean, I think there was a lot of um, liberation that was a theme throughout the book as well but throughout history there's this sense of deep fear and uh like transgression including you know cannibalism sexual rights etc cetera, etc cetera. and it talks about that in the book which i think is really amazing even if it's coming at it from a more um historical perspective so i think that's really fantastic yeah i think one of the things that um we as as witches have to do is we have to sort of 
reconcile with our folklore and with the folklore that is uncomfortable and problematic and gross. Um, and I think so often we sort of push those things away or we don't even know about them. But, you know, we, we, we come, we all, we all come from this folklore and from this, this heritage. Um, and that includes things like um, stories about cannibalism, about infanticide. Um, and how do we, how do we sort of grapple with that as practitioners? Um, I mean, obviously, again, it's important to note that like, it's not that these things really happened. We don't know that. Um, and it's not that we want to do those things today. Um, but I think it's important to sort of look at the whole picture and its many nuances. One of my biggest things that I always try to put out there when I'm sharing my opinion or perspective on things, especially on my, on my different platforms, is to recognize it's important to understand the origins of things, especially things that you're practicing. I think if you're going to be practicing, because a lot of people, especially today, there's a lot of eclectic witchcraft out there. There's a lot of aspects of new age ideas that are being implemented into witchcraft practices. Um, that's another discussion. But in general, I think because there's so much of this eclecticism, people sometimes end up uh, sort of either not knowing where the origins of these practices come from, or they only know the whitewashed version of them. I do know that like learning about the history of the threefold law and how it was, uh, yeah, I don't know if it was a purposeful misinterpretation or just an accidental misinterpretation from his original fiction novel, High Magic's Aid. Mm -hmm. Understanding that completely changed my thought process when it came to, to this, this, quote unquote, I'm literally giving quotes here just for, for listeners, universal law. And then of course you hear about the universal law of the sevenfold and the tenfold and, and all these different types of ideas. And if that's what you wanna practice within your practice, that's wonderful. That is totally your right. You make it yours. You believe in it to the fullest extent, but it's not universal. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't come from a place of, of absolute truth. And there are so many other things like, you know, we've talked about yoga before. It is a, it was a religious spiritual practice. It's not just an exercise learning about the different types of, of things that have become really popular. We lose some of their originality. We lose some of the purposes behind them. Um, I know nowadays, literally one of the biggest questions so many beginners ask is, am I supposed to cast a circle every time? And I think one of the reasons is, is because people lose the histor historical aspect of what is a magical circle? What was it for? What was its purpose? Um, where did casting a circle change from, from going from the idea of creating protection to a sacred space? When did that transition happen? So um, I, getting into the history of the Witches' Sabbath, reading your book, was really, really amazed at seeing this timeline that goes all the way back to almost the turn of this, not the turn of this century, turn of like the BC to AD. <laughs> like that was kind of amazing learning the, the, the progression of, of evolution of what was supposed to be something that was almost a bastardization of, of early Christianity that was actually used on Christians first. Yes. That's like, wow, that to me was kind of amazing. 
Mm -hmm. I think that that was like one of the most surprising things for me in my research. And I think will be a really surprising thing for most readers um, because the, the Witch's Sabbath, um, I think today, like we can look at it and, um, you know, and it's got this really vivid imagery um, of witches gathering in the night, um, usually led by a spirit, most often the devil, um, and they're feasting and they're dancing and they're working magic, um, you know, and then we can get into more like nefarious shades. So there maybe there's orgies happening, there's cannibalism happening. Um, but the Witch's Sabbath was never a monolithic unified concept. Um, it sort of came together over time from these various strands. And there's not really a clear point of origin of like when all of those strands necessarily came together and formed this concept. Um, and so part of the research process was pulling at those strands, unraveling this tapestry, and then through that kind of stitching all of those threads back together. And one of those threads going back to possibly the earliest chain in that, in that fence um, are these accusations that were lodged against early Christians by the Greek and the Roman pagans. And this was that Christians were gathering for these secret meetings and they were engaging in cannibalism, infanticide, and incestuous orgies. And I think these three crimes are specifically chosen because they represent this really um, sort of like beastly um, antithesis to human nature and to the laws of nature. Um, it goes against the way things are supposed to be. Um, and when Christianity came to be the, the dominant religion, they started to take those same three accusations and started putting them on other groups of people that they um, thought to be their enemies. And this is something too that we still see today. Like when we talk about like conspiracy theories, um, these three accusations, these three crimes are still being lodged against people to sort of dehumanize them and demonize them. I'm so glad that you brought that up. You brought that up in the book as well, this kind of like historical analysis of the etymology of the Sabbath and, um, you know, the Christian uh, persecution of, of Jewish people, um, as well as like kind of framing. And it's so interesting when you look at this, like it doesn't stop. Like the witch's Sabbath in one way or another lives in the fear of the overculture and permeates mm -hmm. throughout time, regardless of whether it was, like you said, um, Roman Roman pagans um, conspiring against Christians or, or, you know, the satanic panic in the eighties or even, even now with the, the issues that we have. And it's an imagery that's always stuck. I think a big reason why to go on a little history hypothesis here, I think a lot of the reasons why we would have seen Roman pagans very um, frightened by these Christians is because uh, a lot of the dominant 
narrative that we have as as modern uh, pagans or, or witches is that you know those bad Christians, those evil bad Christians. But really, um, it's the the history is a lot more convoluted and a little confusing. At the time that uh, Christianity would have um, been started, they would have been very much like a death cult. And they, it would have looked really weird from the outside to the Romans who would not have wanted to associate themselves uh, because of their um, relig religious beliefs. You wouldn't be going and digging around graveyards. That was, you know, probably... Um, very polluting, not quite in the same conceptualization as sin, but it was just dirty and they didn't want to do that. And so these Christians are coming, hanging around temples, you know, taking people's bones, carrying them around, blah, blah, blah. And so I think, you know, this, this idea gets kind of like tacked on. Um, and then, you know, that's going to filter through as it moves more north, as the Romans move more north, it's going to start uh, and they become Christian and it's going to show up as the wild hunt and it's going to start showing up as as the horde and all of that so I, I think it's very very interesting this imagery that gets burned into our minds of the witch's sabbath in your book you go into art as well which i loved because mm -hmm. everyone i think by now knows that i'm a, a huge art history fan um you talk about faust which is amazing um you've talked about um, other artworks as well. Some of my favorites are uh, Salvatore Rosa's, which is at their incantations, um, as well as any of the black paintings by um, whatever his name is that I can't go. Oh, yeah, thank you. I wanted to say um, uh, the spice brand. Um, Goya, I wanted to say Goya, but uh, yeah, I was thinking of the spice and I was like, that's not right. Um, so I, I think that's very, very interesting. And I know you had mentioned some of the research that went into the book, but can you kind of walk through that process? I, I wonder um, how how deep dive of a, of a literary like take did you have to go through? Were you sifting through a lot of like trial records and things like that? Oh my gosh. Okay. There are so many stories about the, the, the trials and tribulations of my research. And I think I literally in the process of writing this book acquired an entirely full packed brand new bookcase of research material. Um, I mean, it was intense. Um, I started working on this book um, before the Crooked Path even came out. Um, and uh, the, the sort of thing I realized really early on is that I wanted to look at the Sabbath as it has appeared in the folklore of not just um, kind of uh, the UK or, or Britain, England, um, but I wanted to look at it as it appears in many different European countries, because I think that that's something that hasn't necessarily been done in like a singular sort of volume. Um, and that brought up a lot of research difficulties because I don't speak, I mean, I speak a little bit of German, but, and I can roughly understand Latin, um, but when I'm looking for texts, I mean, they have to be translated texts. Um, and that presented issues and there are gaps in in knowledge in this book and I always am hoping or hopeful that you know maybe someday somebody else will sort of take up the mantle um, and look at some of those other regions 
Um, so like, for example, like Poland was a very difficult um, place to get research material on because all of the texts are in Polish. And there was only one um, book that I was able to find um, that was in English. Um, and so that was my only source for Polish material. Um, same thing with Sweden. Um, there was really only one historical text that I could find translated. Um, so it was, that was difficult. Um, but luckily I think I was able to acquire a nice array of material to provide um, a nice amount of, of folklore stories and confessional materials. Um, but I mean, I remember this was like early on um, when I was looking into the etymology of the word Sabbath and I was trying to sort of track down like when were the earliest accounts of this word being used to describe meetings of witches. And one of the sort of rabbit holes I fell down um, they, there was a one place had cited like it's in this text in this in this text this is the earliest reference and so I found that text but this text is not only in Latin but the available copy on, on online the archived copy is a scan of like the original book like yellowed pages calligraphy writing so you can't even you can't even do like a like control f and like search the word Sabbath, I had to go through and scan. And again, I don't read Latin. So I'm just scanning, looking for this one word, going through pages. And I think luckily I only had to go like 50 pages in. Um, luckily. And, and then it wasn't even, it wasn't even what that other text had said. So it wasn't even a viable, it wasn't even a viable, um piece of information so i mean that's sort of the amount of work that went into this book um, i love research rabbit holes um so i'm not complaining about that for me it was it was sort of this fun um thing to do i don't know what that says about me but um so there was a lot there was a lot of um i mean i have notebooks filled with notes um and yeah, it was sort of, um, I mean, anytime you write a book, the, the sort of layout of it is bound to change. And when I first had the idea for this, I had sort of this table of contents. Um, I think this, the sort of like first iteration of this book in my mind was that there would be a chapter for each country, but then I realized how redundant that would be um, because there's just not that much variance. Um, in Sabbath stories to warrant like a full chapter on each country without it being like, okay, now we're gonna go to this country and oh, like you've already heard this kind of basic structure 10 times now. Um, so I was constant, the, the structure of the book was constantly evolving. Um, and then it, towards the end, it was sort of the marriage between like, okay, we have this history and folklore how do we how do we bring that into modern practice? How do we incorporate those two things together? And also, how do you keep readers engaged? Um, that was a particular concern of my publisher. Um, you know, because this is more of an academic take, it's much more history and folklore than the Crooked Path. Um, is how do you keep readers involved? Because readers, 
at least um, sort of broadly, although I would make an argument that this is changing, but readers want to know, like, how can I use this now? Like, how is this information applicable to me if I'm not like seeing these sort of immediate like exercises or things um, that I can do? Why should I sit through and read this history before getting to the like how to? Um, I think that's changing. I think people are starting to enjoy reading more about history and folklore um, without necessarily needing there to be sort of like an instant gratification. Um, but the research process was fun. Research is like one of my favorite words. My siblings make fun of me relentlessly because of how often I use that word. Um, like they're always just like, oh, there he goes with his research again. Um, they make fun of me for a lot of things, but I guess I still love them. Do you all remember, um, I think her name was Phoebe from the Magic School Bus. Yes. According, according to, to my research. Yeah. Oh yeah, and you can't say, I, I'm, I apologize. It's research. 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 I'm sometimes bad with research because I will have a hypothesis in my mind or a belief that I think um, exists. And then I will try to research to prove it. And that's not research. Right. <laughs> that, that's just that's just bias con that's bias confirmation or confirmation bias so it can become a struggle with me sometimes that's something that I actively try to go out of my way to do and so a lot of times when I am researching things I will actually use keywords that are the opposite of my um hypothesis or what I think is the answer is because I I feel like so many of us do that we, we are very much confirmation bias people in hell Honestly, as witches, the way we sometimes interpret symbols can be very confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think uh, that's something that so many of us, especially as new practitioners in the beginning, can struggle with. Um, so I try to actually go out of my way and research the opposite of what I think exists, because then it can either prove me wrong or right. And either way, I know more now. And that can be a tough thing when it comes to research. <laughs> I feel you wholeheartedly on a lot of the, the research that I've done for um, some projects that I've been working on, as well as like the pigment formulary and other other workshops and things like that. It requires backlog, like internet.archive.com, mm -hmm. which um, that and um, Project Gutenberg is like oh, a, a wow. great resource. Um, for all these wonderful historical texts. God bless God, uh, Project Gutenberg every day. But um, what happens sometimes is then, you, you know, you're stumbling upon a text that you, they just literally have scans of the book and sometimes they're not in English. And even if they are, half the time the pages are, you know, yellow oh. as hell like mm -hmm. nicotine tobacco yellow they're very hard to read so i feel your struggle wholeheartedly another thing that i want to bring up as well because i think you kind of alluded to this a little bit is the dynamic of history and research in witchcraft so i think and I run into this concept too, as practitioners, as modern practitioners, we kind of place this research like on a bookshelf and we're like, it exists here. We know everything about the way that people practiced magic. We know everything about witch trials. We know everything about it. That is so far from the truth. Right. When I tell you people are still 
uncovering translations from old libraries who have just archived this information, haven't even touched it, right? And they've had it for hundreds of years. Nobody's translated it. Nobody's even taken a look at it. And then, you know, somebody who's in, interested in these, uh, you know, in, in occult texts comes along and they're, they, you know, they can pull through this and they're like, oh, I found a whole witch trial record or I found a whole grimoire like that happens all the time well not all the time but it happens often enough to really make you kind of question like okay like like we're still adding to the PGM for god's sakes like people people forget that the PGM is not a book it is a collection of of texts and so I think it's very interesting that you talked about it especially in Poland um and also what, what's um the Schwarzbacher I think it came out the what 28 the Schwarzbacher. It's um, oh, it's... I misheard that. <laughs> oh, like the Schwarzbacher? What? <laughs> not a Schwarzbacher. Oh no! no um, not. <laughs> I, I think it's really, really cool. Um, I think that came out in like 2018, 2019, and it's um, I could be wrong, but it's it's a collection of texts from um, I believe like german and and all of that but there it's recent like it's not like a uh, an old book that you know has been retranslated twenty thousand times and all of that it's recent material so i think that's that's just fascinating and hopefully you're right hopefully someday somebody will kind of you know come along and 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 explore you know maybe somebody who's taken like a couple uh ancient latin courses or something like that Mm-hmm. we're still discovering like commonplace books that are being cataloged mm-hmm. in different places. And I, I remember reading an article, I think just last year, I think it was the summertime. Um, there was a discovery of a commonplace book that had all different types of um, prayers, spells, recipes, and they had hired, they, they, they went to the public to hire people to help. They literally put up pictures and said, can anyone help translate this? We're having trouble breaking this down. And a lot of these people came forward who were fascinated, just layman people, just really excited to kind of see more about it. And I even looked at some of the pictures of them and I was like, I can't decipher all of this, but I love what I'm looking at. <laughs> and it actually uh, inspired me to get a little bit more um, into some of my handwriting journals versus just trying to create a really pretty grimoire and get kind of create my own sort of commonplace books. Uh, which now I have a collection of notepads and, 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 and journals and little books and big books. I want to ransack your, your um, journal stuff one day, Marshall. I just want to know how many you have. Oh, so many of them are like half filled. That's the worst. Uh, I think that's a, a pretty common thing, like half filled journals. And then, ooh, this one's aesthetically pleasing. I'm going to move on to this one. And then I lost one at one point. So I had to move on to a new one and I did a spell to recover it. And then I did. And I was like, well, fuck, now I have two. <laughs> so I, I think it's really, really cool. Also, Keldon, that your book is not just like a piece of, of research. Like it's actually, you know, applying this to modern practice. There are several different techniques and exercises in the book. Um, and they're not all visualization, which I think the, the folk witch in me really appreciates. There's, you know, there's charms, there's rituals, there's um, talismans. And I, 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 I really, really adored it. By the time that I was done with it, I was like, I'm going to go slather on some grease and, and try to slip through the keyhole tonight. Like, that's what I'm going to do. And, you know, I, I just realized after all of this discussion, 
of the research in the book and your practice, Keldon, we, we didn't really do an overview of what the witch's Sabbath is. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe some, I mean, a lot of listeners are already going to know kind of the gist of what it is, but if you could give a generalization to explain mm -hmm. to a new practitioner what the witch's Sabbath is, how okay. would you break this down for them? This happens all the time. This happened, um, gosh, there's an interview I did for the Crooked Path, but like, I just got right into talking about like the history of like traditional witchcraft. And then it wasn't until like the interview was like almost over. There was like, oh, maybe I should have like talked about what traditional witchcraft is. <laughs> um, so this is a common theme in my life. Um, Y'all, I, I wrote this so brief at 11 o'clock last night. I'm very sorry. <laughs> um, so the witch's Sabbath, um, and I think you're right. I think that um, some people are going to be unfamiliar with this because from our modern lens, we're so um, we're so used to the idea of Sabbaths, of these seasonal holidays that have come to us um, through Wicca and then through sort of like broader neo-paganism. Um, but that idea itself, those Sabbaths come from the same, from the same folklore of the witch's Sabbath which is a nocturnal nighttime secret gathering of witches and the devil. Um, sometimes other, there's other spirits that attend the Sabbath. Sometimes there's the idea of like the Sabbath queen. Um, she pops up here and there, but primarily in the folklore, we're talking about witches gathering with the devil. And they gather together to, to enact different rituals, um, rituals of initiation, um, sometimes like in the, in the areas closer to the Holy Roman Empire, we see ideas about the Black Mass popping up. Um, it's interesting because the further away you get from the Holy Roman Empire, the more Sabbath narratives look more like kind of festive get-togethers that's much more centered in, in sort of like feasting and dancing than like these high ceremonial um, rituals. Um, but they gather together and they, they do these acts um, and there's a lot of debate um, by the writers who are writing about this at the time and the persecutors um, over the sort of reality of the Sabbath. Is this something that's happening physically in person? Is this something that's happening um, in sort of a spirit form? Do witches physically fly there? Do they fly there in spirit? Do they um, do, they do neither of those things? And all of those variations pop up in that confessional material the fun thing I always joke about is that like the um, the sort of learned authorities were were sort of getting in these like debates um, versus like the the accused witches were kind of like we do whatever we want like you know like it's not just one or the other it's all things um, but but there is this huge element of flight um, and so witches fly most of the time there are. You know, there are stories of witches walking to the Sabbath or riding horses or carriages to the Sabbath. Um, but, but really, it, it comes to us as this, this nocturnal gathering. Um, in the practice, in today's practice of, of uh, modern traditional witchcraft or folkloric witchcraft, um, the Sabbath continues to be sort of this otherworldly experience. It's not something we necessarily, we don't go to physically, we go to in spirit. We traverse into the other world to attend this meeting. 
um, I did include in the book, there is a ritual of how to sort of enact um, a physical Sabbath um, with um, friends or a coven if you have one. Um, but by and large, this is something that we experience on an otherworldly level. Can you talk more about spirit flight? And you don't have to give like all the ins and outs, but I think <laughs> there are a lot of people who who are very confused about what this is, how to do it, yes. what, what, what exactly that means, what that looks like. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I would say first and foremost is that as with a lot of other things in witchcraft, I think that there's a lot of really high expectations mm. of like what something is going to look like. And with with spirit flight or hedge crossing, which is the act of traveling outside of your body in spirit, traveling into the other world specifically, which I think is part of what differentiates it a little bit from things like astral projection. Although that also depends on how you're defining astral projection, because that's a whole, that's a whole rabbit hole tangent. Um, but but I think so often people have this expectation that when you when you engage in spirit flight there's this complete severance between body and spirit and you're going to have this super vivid out of body experience and you're going to have zero awareness of your physical body or what you left behind in the physical space and i just don't think that that's true and that certainly hasn't been true in my experience but i think it creates this dissonance in people where they fear that they're not doing it right Mm. Or like that, oh my gosh, other people are having that experience. So therefore I must be, I must be wrong. Um, but in my mind, the only time that your spirit is ever completely disconnected from your body is when you're dead. Um, which is funny because one of the early writers who was, um, um, I believe, mm, I want to say it was Henry Bouguet, um, uh, I could be wrong. I think it was him though. But he was making the case that um, spirit flight, witches cannot possibly fly in spirit because that very fact that the only way for them to leave their body and soul was to die. And therefore in order to get back, they'd have to be resurrected and only God could do that. The devil could not do that. So therefore in his mind, he was like, mm, spirit flight is out. Mm -hmm. um, so long-winded way of saying, I think that there's this big expectation that it's um, this sort of really intense, vivid, disconnected, out-of-body experience. And I think it is a lot more subtle than that. In some ways, I almost feel like it's more of a going inward than a going outward. It's like going out by going in, if that makes sense. Um, but essentially this is, you are going into a deep trance and your spirit is traveling forth outside of the physical you're still attached. There still is a tether. Um, and depending upon the level of the trance, depending upon like where you're at um, with your practice, I mean, there's a lot of factors. Like you can still have awareness of your physical body or what's going on around you. Um, and that's gonna, yeah, I mean, that's gonna fluctuate and vary. Sometimes I'm very um, kind of numb or I've very, I've done a very good job of tuning out the physical. There have been other times where, you know, like I'm laying there and suddenly like my leg twitches and like, 
that can be a very distracting thing. It can totally pull you back. Sometimes you can recover from that and that's okay. I mean, this is all just part of the process. Um, but yes, spirit flight, you are sending your spirit, your soul forth into, into the other worlds to do all kinds of different things, including attend the witch's Sabbath. I think um, your book and the exercises within it are going to be very helpful for people who particularly have trouble getting into that state. I know for me in particular, like I've only ever had one flight experience um, well, that's not true, but only one within the, uh, like recently within my uh, adult life where I was like, oh no, this is, this is soul flight. And it happened by, you know, I've tried so many different things. Um, uh, and it came without warning. It came without um, choice. Ways I wasn't actively trying to do just and like coming out through my my mouth, which is as I've you know done a little bit of research. That's actually like a reoccurring theme is the feeling of like I'm traveling out of my mouth, like my my soul is traveling out of my mouth and it's shedding my skin, and you know. And then um, I was I was trying to steady my breathing and I was hyperventilating and. Um, eventually I like kind of like locked up into a little bit of sleep paralysis. So I, I had to like come back and I didn't get very far, but I, I think the exercises in the book are going to be really, really cool because it kind of, you know, lays out this format for you, like breathing as well as like relaxation and, and things like that. And I think that's really exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's, all kinds of, and again, this sort of goes back to like my philosophy of just being very like practical. Um, when, you know, this all is, is, I mean, this is coming back to trance, to achieving trance. And the biggest things that are going like, and I would say actually the biggest thing that's going to help facilitate trance is breathing. Um, I mean, this is a body-based practice. Um, and so finding ways of calming breath you're tapping into your nervous system and with each inhale and exhale you're deepening you're sinking into into trance um and including i you know i wanted to include in the book um progressive muscle relaxation exercises um to help um especially for people who carry a lot of stress and tension in their body because this is a really good way of achieving full body relaxation so that you won't maybe be as distracted when you're doing spirit flight um visualization can be a big part of this but i'm also a really big proponent on looking at visualization outside of like the idea of just um sort of like your your sense of sight you're like an imagined sense of sight. Um, because though, even though the word, you know, is visualization and visual is immediately gonna make us think of like our eyes, I think it's important to look at the other ways we imagine things. We can imagine feel, we can imagine sound and taste. Um, and so your experience might be that when I'm, you know, when I, when I go into spirit flight, I'm not really seeing things, but I'm feeling or I'm sensing. Um, and that's just as important. Um, 
again, I think there's this overblown expectation that like you're going to see these very like vivid imagery, like what I'm looking at right now in this physical space, it's going to look just like this. It's absolutely not. Um, for me, it often comes as more of a knowing, like these sort of like shadowy flashes and this knowing of like what it is before me, um, which is something that's sometimes hard to describe outside of my own head. Um, but I just, I think that, you know, the, the experience of the witch's Sabbath is so different for everyone. And I don't think that anybody's experience is more or lesser than anyone else's. I, I have this thing. So I have not done very, I have not practiced very much hedge crossing myself. That's something that I am actively working on in my practice um, when I can, but I do, I've never tried to put, verbalize this quite the same or the best way possible, but I'm going to try and in this moment, like when I am setting my altar up for either spellcraft or ritual work, I'm not a super ceremonial practitioner, but I do a couple things that really kind of set the space for me. And I actually saw this done, and I remember reading, uh, listening about it on What Magic Is This? And they talked about a few different practices from older grimoires and how they would, you know, you would have the chalice and you'd, you'd drink your wine and then spin around 13 times like you're literally creating disorientation here you're you're sometimes helping the metaphysical meet the physical by kind of meeting halfway so I started a whole practice where um I take my incense whatever like specific fumigation I'm using and I will either hold it if I however I can safely and I will spin around backwards or counterclockwise nine times and in that process I will kind of be visualizing through my actually lack of sight because you know you're not seeing much as you're going around but I'm really focusing on my smell what do I hear how do I feel in this space and as I'm kind of getting into that space by the time I stop that ninth circle thinking in my mind I'm creating a sacred in-between space I get into this this mode that I can feel from the top of my head down the spine into my body that feels like I am not, I may be physically in the same space that I was before I started, but I have created a separate space, um, a, a liminality that I can feel physically, but also I very much know that's the space that I'm in. And I'm not going to say that's soul flight because I don't think that's what it is, but it is it is, uh, it is a, a mind shift, if that makes sense, or a spirituality shift from one specific physical location into almost what I feel like is non-specific location. Mm -hmm. um, and then I will do my spell work there because that's the space I have created for me and the spirits I'm working with to commune. Mm -hmm. I think that is, well, first, I think that's absolutely beautiful. I love that. Oh, oh thank you. Um, <laughs> And second, it makes me think of the practice of treading the mill, which for listeners who maybe don't know, um, that is a, a ritual coming out of traditional witchcraft, specifically sort of um, through Robert Cochran. Um, and it's a way of sort of building power and facilitating trance through um, sort of pacing clock or um, in a circle um, clockwise or counterclockwise, um, that sometimes varies. Um, and this can be done in, in a few different ways. Um, I think sort of classically it's done at a slow pace. Um, it's a slow kind of, um, push. And as you're doing this, you're kind of stirring the energy and you are 
kind of shifting your mind, but also shifting worlds. Um, and sometimes this is done at a faster pace. I've done it sort of um, where as you as you're gathering, you end up sort of at a running um, kind of a, a, a running, I can't think of the word I'm looking for, but like, but pace, I guess. Um, and one of the ways that this can be utilized for spirit flight, and I include this in the book, is that when you get to this sort of climax, um, you just sort of drop. Um, however, you might be physically able to. I mean, you don't have to like necessarily totally collapse, like you can just kind of gently lay down. Um, but you sort of use it as like this way of sort of catapulting your spirit out. When you've gathered all of this movement and suddenly you stop, I mean, it's like, this is a really, really bad um, comparison, but like, it's like if you are driving 70 miles per hour in your car without a seatbelt and then you suddenly stop, like you're gonna go flying. Um, Literally. I, I apologize, that's <laughs> not, that's a terrible, terrible comparison. I know no, what you're saying I'm, though. I think that's great because as I think most people know, like while I'm not doing particularly soul flight in the exact manner that we're talking about in this book, like I am very vocal. Well, I'm not like open about what goes on during that practice, but I'm very vocal about the fact that I use trans journey or trance induced journeying, right? So, so similar to like what you're doing, Marshall, as well as what treading the mill is. It is a trance inducing process to project yourself into the other world and through for that for me is through ecstatic dance and breath work and repetitive movement and it's very intense on my body and then eventually you know I'm going and going and going and going to the point of exhaustion really and then I'm basically just being like okay I'm done and during that it's it's the flashes of spirit it's the uh, I hate this word I really hate this word but download is kind of the best way to oh no Marshall just looked at me like that <laughs> like bitch you don't even use the word energy did you just say download <laughs> no I'm just kidding I, 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 saw tw- I saw a tweet earlier this week and it was like since when did having a thought become categorized as getting a download <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, damn, they came for them. They came for those downloaders. Very, I I feel like I need to start using that in my vocabulary. Mm -hmm. I got to download. I use manifest a lot in a sort of, (gasps) not like, like, (laughs) I know I'm kidding. In a sort of like ironic way that is, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't want to be mean to people, but like, I sort of use it as like very flippantly, like, oh, you manifest that. Or like, I'm just really into manifesting right now. I'm going to manifest. And I guess if we're, why... if, we're, if we're being truly honest, things like vibrations and manifestation existed long before we, yes. we accompanied them with, with, this, with this genre of new age ideas. I still think people can use the terminology of, of, of manifesting your spellcraft. Sure, that all is wonderful. And I actually use vibrations. Um, when I say use vibrations in my craft, I use uh, uh, singing bowls. I use the vibration they carry to carry my will into a type of thing that I'm either charming or charging. Um, I think there is a very big difference between using your voice and vibrating with your vocal cords when saying something versus saying something just in your head. Um, I think that those are ways that we can kind of totally use where it's like download vibration and manifestation. 
so I don't want people to think that if you use that and you're listening that we're making fun of you because I promise we're not unless you use no. it wrong then we are no absolutely <laughs> it's it's definitely not something that's necessarily a part of my vocabulary but that's very intentional just because of the connotations that it carries with me. But mm-hmm. I, I, I see those as very important and, and very descriptive words um, to understand what is going on. I mean, like I, I, we basically use the same terminology, just different words to describe mm-hmm. what's going on. So especially in terms of like, like, like how I was saying with ecstatic dance, it, it's flashes, it's visuals. Mm-hmm. I, I'm very prone to visual, um, uh, visions, quote unquote, and then having to decipher, you know, what is that? What what is a thought? What is mine? And also, like, what is spirits? And and I think it's very, <clears throat> it's very interesting the several different methods that people employ trance induced journeying into their practice. Well, and that makes me think. I mean, like, like both uh, Austin and Marshall, both of your sort of like stories and like those pieces of your practice, it makes me think back to like this sort of adage that like, right, like a witch is someone who has one foot in the physical world and one foot in the spirit world. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why things like spirit flight um, are not so far out of our reach um, as we might think, because I think we're sort of always in tune and we're prone just sort of these like flashes and these moments where the world sort of like collide and we're seeing both or we're sort of flashing back and forth. Um, and, and Austin, like when you were talking about your um, experience with Spirit Flight, where it was like very, um, like it was not, it's not something that you intended, it was just happening. Like that was some of my early experiences with spirit flight is like, it was like, mm, I'm kind of like, suddenly it's like, okay, like you're going to sit down and like, you're just going, you're just going, we're, we're bringing you, like we are, we're pulling you into this. Um, and again, I think it's just about this like inherent nature of witches as being sort of half in the spirit world. It was the strangest experience. It was just like this loud earthquake rumbling like in my ears and I'm laying down, like I'm somewhere in between sleep and awakeness. And it's just this loud rumbling and I start feeling my heartbeat picking up. And then I feel this like trembling inside of me from my gut. And it literally feels like, you know, I have a hand crawling through my mouth and I'm like, what's, you know, I know what's going on, but I'm, wondering just what's going on. And then, you know, next thing I know, here we are. What were you about to say, Marshall? I'm sorry. Actually, I was gonna say, can I take a quick bathroom break? I'll be right back. Yeah, for sure. Okay, thank you, I can uncross my legs. (laughs) (laughs) Now we can tell all the secrets. I know. I'm gonna talk so much shit, it's not even funny. I can't even believe this. Um, I don't, oh, I can't see our timestamp. Oops, sorry, Marshall. Maybe I should rec- try and edit this episode, seeing as how Marshall does all the the editing, and I always feel guilty that um, I don't. <laughs> um, yeah, no, the book was really, really cool. I really liked it. This is oh, all. I'm so uh, glad. I'm sure we'll cut this out or make it into a special thing. It's always like because, like, at this point, like the book is like out of my hands, like. I think the next, so the sort of next thing that will happen is in 
September, I believe they'll send me like a um, sort of like a edit copy where like I'll see like the design, like the inner design, and then like I can like um, give some feedback if I need to. Um, but otherwise, it's just like just waiting, and it's always like this like I just want to know. I just want people to read it and I want to know. Um, and so like, like I've sent it to people um, who are like reviewing it to like write little blurbs. Um, and then I've sent it to a few other people just cause I'm like, hey, you're, you're cool and I like you. You want to read this early? If you, like if you want to like read like a PDF that's not completely, totally edited properly. Um, but yeah, so it's just like the waiting game. Speaking of Aaron, I saw them yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I know you didn't mention Aaron, but I know they were, um, uh, we were talking about, well, you came up in a conversation because I was like, oh, we're doing a, a thing um, with Kelvin tomorrow. So it's been cute. This past weekend's been really, you really been cute. I've been so busy and I'm really tired. And I think I, I have a whole house to clean. My house is a fucking disaster. Marshall, you're back. Yes, I feel relieved. Yay. Okay. Okay. I have a question for you, Keldon. Yes. How do you feel about using the um, help of different types of flying ointments in mm -hmm. Soulflight? What are your thoughts on that? Yes. This is, this is, an, I was waiting for this to come up because this is another one of those things where I feel like there are these really high expectations. Mm. Um, and I think this sort of comes out of like a deeper sort of like, psychological piece or like an anxiety um, and I'll get I'll, I'll come full circle to that but um, obviously flying ointment this idea of different kind of um, potions if you will um, created from different ingredients plants um, nefarious uh, sort of uh, grisly ingredients came into it over time like baby's fat bat's blood um, there's some recipes that include like funerary clothes um, and and soot and things like that. Um, but but kind of original recipes were more were more plant-based. Um, but over time they also came to be associated specifically with poisonous plants. These these flying ointments were created from poison plants. And this ointment was rubbed on the witch's skin or on whatever implement they might be flying on, like a broom. Um, more classically, it would have just been a plain stick. Um, brooms were actually not quite as popular as um, we might think. Um, but essentially this would aid the witch in flight. Um, and this is something that has been incorporated into, into modern practice to, in, in all kinds of different ways. Um, but oftentimes people are really getting into working with with poison plants and specifically kind of these big four, mandrake, belladonna, henbane, and detora. Um, and these can be utilized. I mean, these can be utilized. I've utilized them. I've worked with them um, because they do sort of facilitate trance. They help, they have an entheogenic effect. They have properties to them. Um, and, um, but this is something that I think often gets sort of overhyped because it's kind of this spooky, spooky, um, forbidden thing. Um, and I think people really like those things, especially if they're searching for this sense of authenticity, um, which is often attributed with like 
things that are old, right? Like if we can find this old ancient magic, this is what will get us the results we want. This is when we'll feel super real and authentic. And I think flying ointment is one of those things. And especially if spirit flight is already this sort of over um, kind of like a high expectation thing where it's like, am I actually doing it? Is this actually what it is? Is this actually working properly? I think it's the promise that like this ointment is going to just blow you into the other world and you're gonna have this really intense experience. Um, I think flying ointment can be a great ally, um, but I think it is only a tool and it will only get you as far as your own abilities can. Um, so you can't just put flying ointment on and then be like, oh, boom, I'm in the other world. I mean, you still have to go through the practical skills, the, you know, the breath work, the visualization. Um, it's not a shortcut. It's not, you know, it's not an easy um, fix. It's like, okay, I can put the keys in my car and start my car, but I also have to, you know, steer and, and you know, put my foot on the pedal um, to get somewhere. Um, so in that way, I think flying ointment is not the be all end all of, of spirit flight, of hedge crossing or the witch's Sabbath. Um, I think it is not necessary. I think it can be helpful, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's inherently necessary. I also don't think that um, for something to be a flying ointment, it inherently has to include poisonous plants. Um, and people, people will sort of, um, you know, maybe give me shit for this because again, if it's not, you know, ooky spooky, is it even, is it even real? Um, but there are a lot of other plants that are much safer that also have entheogenic properties. Um, the biggest two that are going to come up are wormwood and mugwort. Um, also clary sage, I would include in that. Um, and so you can still create flying ointments that help facilitate trans state um, that also have great magical properties mm -hmm. that are going to help um, and, you know, and not potentially risk your health. Um, and that's okay. It doesn't make you any lesser than, um, but, and those are the recipes that I've included um, in both the Crooked Path and the Witch's Sabbath, because I'm a firm believer that if somebody really does want to work with flying ointment and they want to specifically create their own, but they don't have the proper knowledge or training to be handling these poisonous plants to make ointments, um, that, you know, here's an alternative. Here's something else you can do that's still rooted in, in magical theory and folklore and is going to, and is going to work. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not going to be something that is, you know, potentially risky for your health. I had um, seen my, my friend Kobe from Poisoner's Apothecary this weekend. We had hung out, um, at the the convention that I was working and I you know we were just like chatting and we Toby's very knowledgeable on the poison path he has a mm -hmm. uh flying ointment course uh like workshop coming and up coming out <laughs> and a book coming out yeah absolutely um so super excited for him and we were chatting and you know we were kind of discussing poisonous poison path in general and also flying um and 
there is, I think you're right. I think there's like a little bit of this spooky, spooky edgelord. Like I just want to poison myself. And I think, um, you know, my opinion on it is, is there has to be a connection with the plant spirit as well. I, I don't think it's just how to get you fucked up. I think it's, you know, working with a plant ally in the, um, I, I know you mentioned it in your book and it's not Grimoire Verum, I don't think, but the the book that kind of was like baby fat is included in this. I forget which one it is, um, but there, sorry, go ahead. Oh, oh, I think the sort of like earliest uh, or one of the earliest where baby's fat started to be included was actually the Malleus Maleficarum. Okay, but it, it, it's like um, the conception of this is actually like uh it's something else right it's not like baby's fat i'm pretty sure it's hog's lard or yeah there's different mm -hmm. whatever whatever fat you can get your hands on and then you know the inclusion of of soot because that helps um create more alkalinity in the in the solvent or in the the salve and that's going to help penetrate your skin deeper but it's not just about like how to get you fucked up it's it's right. also like what plant is going to help take you there by spirit not even by by actually poisoning yourself you know right and i think it's really important that you bring up the sort of spirit of those plants because let me tell you the and I'm sure other people will tell you this too, and I'm sure you already know this, but like the plant spirits of the Solanaceae family, which is like, you know, where Belladonna and Datora and Henbane and Mandrake are coming from, like they're hardcore and they will fuck you up if you disrespect them. Um, and that is one thing that I cannot stand. And this is where I'm getting heated. Um, is this sort of idea that like, right, like flying ointment is a party. It gets you fucked up. You're going to trip out. And I've seen this. Um, and I think it is just so disrespectful to those plant spirits because that's not what this is about. This is not about getting high. Um, and, and I guess I shouldn't say that because that sort of um, makes getting high like this sort of terrible thing. But like... Um, you know, but in this really like disrespectful way. And that is what is sort of the key of like the entheogenic experience is that there's a ritual context to it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're not just doing this because, you know, you want to get fucked up. You're doing this in this ritualized context. I think that's important. And, and also a way of too, like if you do want to work with those poisonous plants, there's ways of doing that and, and you know, and tapping into their virtues without like putting them on your body, um, including, I mean, including um, being assisted with by them in spirit flight without doing that. I mean, you could create a charm bag um, that you carry with you as you, as you engage in spirit flight, you know, and, and it can contain parts of those plants. Um, you could, I mean, really on that complete spiritual level, like you could be asking those spirits to help carry you in spirit form into the other world. So there's a lot of different ways of working with, with poisonous plants and um, yes, flying ointment. I've actually, um, I have a video on my Patreon I, cause I couldn't put it, cause I couldn't put it on any other platform of using cannabis as an entheogenic mm -hmm. mem uh, uh, act of 
of uh, including it into your practice in a way that you that helps open doors to in between liminality. Um, mm -hmm. And I actually specifically have a video. I won't go too deep into it just because I can only say so much, and and I also don't want to give everything away. But like, it's not about getting fucked up. I actually will mix a little bit of of mugwort in with a little bit of cannabis, and I'll have like a special uh, device that's specifically only for that. It's not about trying to get super high. It's not about trying to have a party. It's about trying to just shift your brain or your mindset or your experience, how you perceive reality, slightly differently. And you can work with the spirit of these plants. You can work with their magical properties and you can actually, because I actually am a huge believer in the intersection of, of, of science and magic. I think that there are a lot of ways that we can work together. We know the history of medicinal plants, same sort of situation. So I will sometimes use a mixture of those two in a, a smoking apparatus, uh, to do right before I do a ritual, um, which is interesting because smoking can hit you in a in a quicker sort of way. While a, I have actually experimented with different flying ointments before, and it just when you rub that on your body, especially in different places, I mean, if you're really looking to try to pinpoint when things start to to have perceived experiences sometimes it's like 30 to 45 minutes later yeah it can, <laughs> it can take some time so don't think you're just going to put a few things in your armpit and the bottom of your feet and all of a sudden blast off that is not how this works belladonna is a cruel lady y'all yeah. <laughs> i will say no but i i swear and this is like some very like personal gnosis but like belladonna is very like her as a plant spirit I do identify that it's very feminine it's very like a lady very beautiful very like uh, amazing wonderful wonderful plant and she's also like terrifying like very like yeah. embodies Bologna embodies that war deity like it's mm -hmm. very interesting for Bologna. me I always associated her with um the queen of swords in tarot which is my favorite tarot card and is the one that often comes up as like a representation of me in readings, which is kind of funny because I definitely don't, um, I don't think of, of, on the surface I carry that energy, um, but it's very much that like um, the queen from Snow White is also sort of how I visualize Belladonna. She's just this very like um, beautiful, cold, um, clinical, like, she's got passion, there's passion there, but it's like under this icy exterior. It's a femme um, fatale. She is hot. She's hot. And she is a, like, the plant spirit itself is a witch. And I, oh, yeah. I, I know we've talked about this in the past about how, like, plant spirits can quite so be witches. And sometimes, I mean, I've, I've had experiences where plants are priests. And so, you know, plants are people too, people. Um, mm -hmm. You know how I feel yeah. about my morning glories, so. <laughs> yeah, and should, and should. So I think engaging with these plants in a less like, I think entheogens are great. I think they're very helpful tools. I think imbibing or ingesting plant spirits, whether it's transdermally through the use of tinctures, teas, flower essences, smoking, breathing, suffumigations, et cetera, et cetera. It's all really, really wonderful. Like taking that plant into yourself to be partially possessed is amazing. But 
I do think that when it comes to the poison path, there's this a little, this, this weird fetishization mm-hmm. of like, look at what I'm doing, look at how edgelord I'm being. Um, and I, I just don't think that it's necessarily, that it's not necessary. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that that's something like that sort of like fetishization, there we go, maybe, um, <laughs> um, or edgelordiness comes up a lot in spaces of traditional witchcraft. Um, and I think some of that is sort of this like, I don't know, I think it's like sort of identity seeking um, behavior. Like people are really trying to um, empower themselves, but they're taking it in this direction of like, let me sort of push back against sort of norms, which is not a bad thing. But like, for example, like we often see this sort of like uh, feud, if you will, between like Wicca and traditional witchcraft. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of times it's this like pushback of like, well, no, actually I'm really authentic because I'm doing these things that you're not doing and you are just love and light and fluffy bunny. And I'm, you know, like I remember, um, it's quite old now, but there's like this like meme where it's like traditional witchcraft, scarier than your Wicca. And like, it's like, oh my God. Okay. What are you five? Like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I also think it's really funny too because like they're both from the same time period and traditional witchcraft has like it's a series of letters calm down like it's it's and, and if y'all have read the letters like it's not it's <laughs> not like this wellspring of information like right. it's it's seven ish letters from Cochrane or so there's a few different ones it yeah, yeah it's it's like not it ain't it ain't shit um, I think a lot of people get into witchcraft too, whether that's Wicca or traditional or folkloric or eclectic, it doesn't matter. I think a lot of people come into spirituality sector when they are getting into sort of different aspects of self-empowerment, self-help, yes. trying to get back to the self. And unfortunately, depending on where you fall in that, depending on on how sometimes people start to get obsessive over it. Mm-hmm. Self-care can turn into narcissism very quickly if one's not careful. So um, I've seen that happen with a lot of people that especially gets really deep into the whole like uh, no bad vibes or positive vibes only people. It gets very deep into the edge lordy people who are finding a sense of, of control and power in their lives. And instead mm-hmm. of... Um, celebrating it and using it for themselves they end up holding it over others because it makes them feel more powerful right and this is where like you were talking about like the intersection of like science and witchcraft like for me it's a lot of times too like the intersection between like psychology and witchcraft oh yes like seeing the way that like right i think you're right and and that's very true to the folklore as well of like witchcraft being for the disenfranchised it it helps people find power when that power has been taken from them or isn't available to them. Um, and, and that's very true to my experience as well, growing up being um, really bullied a lot in school and sort of coming into witchcraft and specifically Wicca at the time and really just feeling empowered and like, wow, like, yes, people are really shitty to me, but like, I have this whole spirituality you know, I have this power at my fingertips. I have this connection to these spirits and to things bigger than me. And like, this is, this is everything that I need. 
Um, and I think that that's really beautiful. Um, I also think too, this is sort of going back to, to like bashing on uh, Wicca is that a lot of times people don't who do that, like they don't really understand what Wicca is or the history of Wicca because all you need to do is crack open like um, Triumph of the Moon or like Modern Wicca by Michael Howard to know that like, like the history of Wicca is just <laughs> as spooky. They were, you know, doing ooky spooky things too. Um, you know, so it's just a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of, you know, not knowing your history, but um, it's just, it's funny. I've got, you know, and I've gotten flack and I knew I was going to get flack for that in, in writing the, in writing the Crooked Path because I talk about Wicca in a way that is respectful. Um, and I'll never forget um, reading this review where the reviewer was like, the author doesn't even try to hide his Wiccan roots. Like, and I'm like, w why would I? Yeah, why? Like, um, and like, or like people being like, oh, like the, uh, you know, like the, uh, he really, he really cares about Wiccans. And it's like, well, why wouldn't I? Like, it's just so bizarre. The Wicca bashing, it's even happened on my page just because like, I don't know, um, it doesn't happen so much anymore, but kind of when I first started Bainex Bramble, there was a lot of um, like people who saw that I was like folkloric and they were like very like uh, Wicca bashy. And I was like, yeah, that's, it's, it's uncalled for. Calm down. It's, it's not tacky. necessary. It is, yeah. Right. Yeah. So the witch Sabbath. Is cool. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, so, uh, I like it's so easy to like get into these tangents because I love talking about all of these things. It is so easy. I mean, I, I think it all kind of is, it, it doesn't matter. It's all kind of a part of it. And I think the witch's Sabbath is going to be a really gorgeous book when it is published do you have a publication um area that you'll be um presenting Keldon? um the book comes out january 8th which is actually the same day that the crooked path came out so they're, they're like kind of a cool connection there quite auspicious do you have any other projects or or where can people find you etc etc um i don't have any kind of current projects. Um, I've got some ideas percolating. Um, so we'll see what what comes from that. Um, I think I'm ready for sort of a, a break. Well, um, the Witch's Sabbath was quite hefty. <laughs> so it was yeah, good. I'm ready for kind of a, a vacation from writing and just um, one of the things um, sometimes like me and like, um, other authors that I'm friends with, like we talk about it as terms of like book jail, like when we're writing, we're in book jail. Um, and writing a book like this, as much as, I mean, I love reading history and folklore, but like it does sort of become this like arduous task and I don't get a lot of time to read other materials. So I'm really, um, you know, I just want to take some time to like read, read more um, for enjoyment or other books. But anyways, so no, um, not necessarily any current projects. Um, people can find me on Instagram um, at Keldon Mercury. Um, you know, I've progressively sort of like decreased my social media presence. 
I'm fading into obscurity. Um, but that's like the primary place where, where people can find me. As all good occultists do. Right. I actually saw this thing recently that someone said when they started becoming a uh, building a platform sharing some of their spiritual experiences within within the occult they shared a lot and the more they got deeper into their own practices and the longer they did this the less and less they shared and the more they just shared concepts and ideas versus their own individual practice and, and pieces of themselves i found that very telling because since I started my page, it's been very similar. I feel like Same. more, yeah, more that I'm putting out there is less what I will see have necessarily in my book or what I'm exactly doing and more about certain larger scale concepts and ideas. I really do not like to talk there there's and I'm open with my practice to an extent like I don't mind sharing information I don't mind sharing gnosis but to to the point where I like will get into the nitty-gritty of it like I don't think I really talk very much about that at all with anybody I mean unless it's you know client work or anything like that but I think that comes from recognizing that, that when you put things out there people it's not just about the criticism from people, but it's almost more like the, why am I trying to defend my own practice to these random online strangers? Instead, I'd rather defend concepts or just not defend at all and say, hey, you don't have to agree with me. Goodbye. <laughs> I think it's, Goodbye. again, sort of is stemming from this like, like yearning for, for authenticity and how that sort of takes shape in sort of our modern Cult, like social media culture is like through posting um mm. you know like if you're not posting about it is it even real um and and like this is definitely i mean i don't mean any of this to disparage content creators um but i think that it there is also this sort of like competition of like making a name for yourself um and within the witchcraft community it often is presenting as like being like a professional witch um and I've got to like, um, sort of like professionalize my craft. You get to a certain point where it's like, now I have to become a teacher. And I mean, obviously I'm saying that as somebody who writes books. So, um, but I think there is this sort of pressure that like, right, you reach a certain point and it's like, okay, now how can I like make this into a business? How can I be a biz witch? Oh yeah. Um, not a biz witch. Not a biz witch. That's actually one of the reasons why I stopped making wands for a while. Um, and I still haven't opened my shop back up again. I got so many calls for, for commissions and will you make me one? And I want these stones and I want it this color. And I was just like, damn, I used to love doing this. Mm -hmm. Like I would just do it for art. And that's the big thing. And that's what it comes down to. Like, as I've sort of like grappled with this over the last few years of like, because obviously there's nothing wrong with turning your passions into a career or um, being a content creator or a teacher. But I think it comes down to like, what is your motivation? And like, is this coming from a place of like fulfillment and like you're actually you're actually getting something from this for yourself or is this coming from that place of anxiety or low self-esteem um, that we're all prone to of like, am I, am I good enough? Um, and if it's coming from that, then that's a time where you might want to like readdress. And I think for me, honestly, that was a big thing is like, do I actually want to be 
posting all this stuff or doing these things or engaging with social media because I genuinely want to, or because I feel like if I don't like, then I, 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 I'm not relevant anymore. And that's kind of what I came to find that I just said, you know what, screw social media. Like if I become like this obscure person that nobody knows, like, I think that's kind of romantic. It's good for the plot. <laughs> the witch in the woods. You got to find her. The audience, the audience, my, the imaginary camera that's always watching. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I'm always, in my mind, I'm always going to be like the quirky, the quirky girl in the coffee shop. And She's the Zoe Deschanel of, <laughs> of her own show. Yep. That is who I am. She, at, least I you're not, at least you're not the Bella Swan, you know? Oh, well. No. Not Miss Swan. <laughs> no, I'm no swan. Keldon, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. I know Marshall does too. I'm sure you can speak for yourself. I don't know why I'm talking like you're not here. <laughs> no, I really appreciate it. Uh, your book has meant a lot to me. Uh, getting to know you has meant a lot to me. So now I feel like when I read your words, I feel like I, I know the person who's telling them to me. I don't just read them as they are written. So uh, it, 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 means a lot that we've been able to build sort of a friendship. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've been so excited about this. Um, I think you're both doing such a great job with your podcast um, and you're both hilarious to listen to. So like, as I'm like doing like mundane things, like it brings me joy to like listen to these stories while I'm doing that. Um, so I feel really honored to get to be a part of it and, and kind of share some of my stories on your podcast. Oh, well, thank you. Well, we'll have to have you back again because like, obviously you do quite well here and, um, and it, it creates a lovely banter. <laughs> That's very kind of you. Thank you so much. Keldon, when did you say The Witch's Sabbath will be out again, January? January 8th. Of 2022. Yes. So just a few months away. Perfect. <laughs> it really is actually. Wow. You've been listening to Southern Bramble, a podcast of Crooked Ways. I'm Marshall, the witch of Southern Light. And I'm Bane X Bramble on Instagram. Have a great day, y'all. Mm-hmm.